Uh, hello, I'm Jed Hallam. I'm an Adland planner, advertising, creative advertising planner. Uh, this, this sounds weird to say, but founder of Love Will Save the Day. Founder seems a little bit over the top. Uh, and also started a working class community called Common People. Thanks, Jed. That's great. So um, what we'd like to do on Creators on Speed is talk a little bit about more about like what that is so t- talk to me about planning like if you for people who don't know what that is just explain a little bit about what well, your day is like there's quite a lot of planners that don't understand what planning is yeah. um so planning is is a sort of weird discipline that came about in probably i think probably the sort of the mid 70s uh, an agency called jwc joe like uh, jay walter thompson and what used to happen in advertising agencies before planners were around is that the people that would look after client service would come up with uh, the sort of the direction that the creative should move in. So it sounds it sounds probably a bit twee, but they'd kind of think about, you know, who the audience is that the advertising is supposed to be going to. They'd make some decisions based on, you know, insight and uh, I, I suppose a lot of intuition, really. And then they'd kind of give that information, background information to the creative teams. The creative teams would then go off and, you know, it's the 70s. So there was like radio ads, print ads and TV. And that was pretty much about it. Um, and they go off and come up with some ideas that would sit in those in those formats. Um, in the mid seventies, JWT came up with this idea of, of the account planner. It was a person who's dedicated to basically filling in that sheet that said, like, who are we talking to? What are we trying to achieve? And how are we going to do it? And there's a paper that we've got that got put together by a guy called Stephen King in the seventies, which is the JWT planning guide. It's available. You can find it anywhere. There's wow. a PDF, and it is the definitive record of what planning is and it's really really simple it's effectively what i've just described what are we trying to achieve who are we trying to talk to and how are we going to do it and i think since probably what the mid 70s advertising people have been trying to make it far more complicated every single year <laughs> and done so with quite a lot of success <laughs> but um that's not all you do we're going to come on to that a bit later but i want to take you back because obviously you weren't born a planner, although some people would say some people are, but that's another story. Um, but um, when you were growing up, and where were you growing up? And what what parts of sort of creativity and creative activities have in your in your life? Yeah, I think there's there's two things that have been really really informative, uh, and both of them like total total by happenstance. So my grandfather used to take me into WH Smiths on every Sunday morning like religiously I never we, we never bought we didn't have any money so we never bought anything but he would literally let me just rifle through magazines for like I'm, I'm not joking now like two hours three hours it was like the world's best library and I just got so used to soaking different stuff up that it got nothing to do with anything that was interesting because we're just in there for ages so I just rifled through so many odd magazines as I got older some of the ones that I probably shouldn't have been looking at but that's fine um so that that kind of I think I've only realized this in the last few years, but it kind of imbued this sense of like curiosity is good. And actually just looking at stuff because it's interesting is fine. You don't need to look at it just because it's to do with work or it's to do with that thing that you've got that's really annoying. Or like, I think that that really focused, I've got a problem to solve. I'm going to try and fix it by finding the solution approach. For me, at least very rarely works. Um, Whereas this kind of like, and I think this is actually from how cells develop. And there's a guy called Stephen Johnson who talks about the adjacent possible is an amazing principle, right? There's always a solution to your problem outside of the area that you're looking at. It's yeah. always, something's always come up before that's kind of similar, that's analogous to it, that you can use to sort of fix something. Um, 
so that's one thing. And then the other thing, such a, again, such a weird one. I've only realized this in the last few years as well. I remember when I was at university and I was in my last year and I was living at home in the last year because I'd, I'd run out of money and literally it was like it, I had to sell records. That's how bad the situation got. Um, so I moved home and I was like, I think I was just, I was starting to put my, together my dissertation. I did English lit at university and I was talking to my dad in the hallway because he was giving me loads of stick and he was like, what are you going to do like when you graduate? Like you'll, you'll, you'll be paying rent. Like you need to get a job, like either up your hours at Sainsbury's or you need to get something sorted straight away. And very flippantly, I just like sort of like tossed my head around. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll find something like this stuff that I can do. And he said, and it was really, really sweet. And it stuck with me forever. He was like, well, why don't you look at writing jobs? Because you're actually a pretty good writer. My dad doesn't dish out compliments very often. And it's probably only ever read one or two things that I've ever written in my entire life. Yeah. But it just stuck with me because I was like, okay, I actually do really like writing. And not like, not necessarily like fiction, but I just, I just love explaining things in what I think is a logical, a logical kind of progression. Yeah. And those two things really curiosity and the ability to construct an argument are like the founding things of like planning. So I don't think it's a massive shock. I definitely wasn't born a planner, um, but I don't think it's a massive shock that I I ended up doing what I did, even if I didn't know what I'm doing now existed until about a decade ago. Sure. And then when you left uni, did you have a, what was the path into um, sort of advertising, I'm guessing, as a planner? Yeah, Yeah, well, I didn't want to, I didn't want to move to London. I thought moving to London was like, I'd get lost. I hadn't got enough money to move to London. I didn't have like a network of people, support network or anything to kind of like buy me a flat in Dalton or wherever. Like, so I didn't have any of that stuff. So I thought, well, I've got a car, I've got a beat up old Citroen Saxo. And I know that there are jobs that I can go to in Leeds and Manchester. So I just looked for any job that involved a lot of writing. So I looked at copywriting jobs. I looked at, uh, I looked at Ed like, um, editorial uh, jobs and uh, copy copy proofing jobs that's the one like publishers and things like that anything that involved like a lot of words that I could just do the thing that my dad had told me that I was kind of good at and might maybe make some money doing it and one of those jobs was a PR job and it was these two guys that had recently sold a PR agency and they wanted to set up a new one they both thought the internet this again dates me really badly they both thought the internet was going to be kind of kind of like a big thing and social media specifically was going to be like an interesting thing. So this is like 2006, 2007. Yeah. So I met these guys and just convinced them that I knew what I was talking about by talking about things that they didn't know what they were talking about. So I just talked about Twitter and Facebook quite a lot because I joined Twitter like maybe a couple of months earlier and just thought it was really interesting, just really strange and just full of like WH Smiths, but just like 15 years later, basically. Yeah. Um, and so they, they just... I think they fell for it really. Like they gave me a job on 12 grand a year. Again, dates me really badly. Um, and so I just, I would get up at like 6 a.m., drive to Leeds to try and get there for like half seven, eight o'clock. And I would just do as much and as, as, as many exciting things as I could. And I was really, really lucky in the sense that one, these two dudes just totally fell for my, like my bluster. Um, and two, the agency grew because it called itself the UK's first social media agency. Now, let me tell you, Joe, it was not the UK's first social media agency. <laughs> they lied to you. <laughs> but enough people believed it that they yeah. were like, great, in you come. I think bluster must have been the sort of common thread between all of us. Yeah. Um, 
and so I got to work with some like amazing brands. Like I did like a project for the UN, like wow. one years old on like yeah. social media guidelines. I don't even know what I'm talking about now. I definitely <laughs> didn't then. Um, and then I, I, I led to work with like First Rx and Sony Ericsson. I did some stuff for uh, the Discovery Channel. Got to meet Stephen Hawking. That was that was I was not mentally prepared for that at all. That was wow, a, yeah, starstruck. And then through Twitter, I met. Uh, a woman called Amelia Tarode, who again, I, I don't know, like whether she knew what she was taking on or whether it was just a bit of a, a sort of a hit and a hope. She said, well, why don't you come to London? Because I'd like you to come and do at BCCP what you've done where you are now. And I was like, well, I, what have I done where I'm now? And she was like, well, you were like one of the first people that worked there. So you basically helped set up the agency. So you've mm. seen what it takes to do and how you do it. And, you know, we've got like finance people and HR people that can help with some of the boring stuff, but you know how to do it. And I'd not really thought about it like that at all. Um, yeah. And, you know, we can come onto the common people thing at a different time. The job that I got at that agency, the first agency, I was like, this is the greatest job I'm ever going to have in my entire life. I'm getting paid to sit around reading and researching about stuff writing about stuff and it's all really interesting oh and I met Stephen Hawking the other week and I got <laughs> yeah exactly so this is the greatest job that I'll ever have I want to do this for the next 60 years and then die happy like I'm fine with that yeah um and then this amazing human from lo- that there London got in touch to be like do you want to come and do it and I was like I, I'm totally out of my depth um, and I met with her and she was lovely and warm and imbued confidence that I definitely didn't have. Um, and so then I got into a creative agency and I just found that there was loads of like, it was really intimidating because there was loads of really, really, really smart, incredibly well-educated, sophisticated people. And then there was the creative department and it was, I just ran wild. There were so many sort of like, amazing people who just thought about things in such an odd twisted warped logic that I was like you people are amazing and I'm still I'm still the people that I met in my first few weeks at BCCP I'm still best friends with now like there was just a group of us that just kind of just really got on um and I don't you know not out of not out of any sort of conscious decision but I don't tend to I don't have that many friends that are planners most of my friends are like the oddballs that I've got references that I've never heard of that I then go and spend like 15 minutes Googling. Yeah. They're just the interesting people, I think. Totally. So I, I totally agree. Cause it's all about sort of, for me, it's about sort of finding new things. And so when someone says something new to me, like you've already said a few things already that I'm like, Oh, right. I'm going to go and find out about that. And we it will of course put them in the show notes. Sorry. It, like everything's a rabbit hole. And I think that's yeah. amazing. Those, those moments where you disappear and you like you look at your watch and you're like, oh my God, it's like three hours later. Where is, what's happened? But your brain is just like lit up like a Christmas tree. Like, yeah, I think that's the, the sort of the biggest risk there is, I think for planners, I do quite a lot of mentoring. And this is one of the things that I tell everybody when they're like, I want to be a planner is you have to retain this kind of like almost childlike enthusiasm for everything. Because the second you start to get cynical, you start to use the same ideas and the same thinking and you start to get a bit lazy and then you roll out the same sort of stuff. And before you know it, you're really bored with your job. And I, I feel so lucky to do the job that I do. Like yeah. I'm, I've turned 35 recently and honestly still like what, 14 years in, I'm like, 
this is the greatest job I've ever done in my life. And I've done loads of different ones, but there it, it's still within the same realm of like, yeah, getting paid to, to, to sort of understand stuff that you don't currently understand and then make it simple for people. Amazing. Talking of rabbit holes. So Love Will Save the Day, for those who don't know, from my point of view, is an amazing playlist that I get sent through on a weekly basis, which takes me down musical rabbit holes that I've like never been on. I mean, this, some of the stuff you put in there is just like, oh, where is this? Why have I not heard this before? So talk to us a bit about how it came together and, and uh, where, where you're at with things with Love Will Save the Day. First, thank you for the really kind words. It's always, it's still blows my mind that anybody pays any attention to it um so when I moved to London in fact going further back the other thing that my dad accidentally introduced me to was record collecting because he played me a Chemical Brothers album um when I was about I think it was probably about 12 um and it just blew my mind but he played it on on record and then he, he said look well you know there's a lot of these and I've got a lot of them upstairs. And, you know, he'd been like a collector since he was, yeah, in his like, I think late teens. And he had like, he was more of a collector than a buyer. Like I'm not a collector because these are all in terrible condition. These are like bought to play in like dusty fields and in sunshine where bits of them yeah. are. They're not built to be collected and sort of, sort of, I don't know, polished and like oiled and all of that. Yeah. Like I buy them to play them. But my dad's a collector. And so he got me into record, uh, like record buying very early. And it, it was just, again, that same sort of like um, WH Smith thing of just being like, just seeing like album covers in HMV and Virgin Megastore when you could buy like, tw- like 12 inch singles for like 99p it was just amazing because there was just this whole new world opened up. And so a few of the friends, that I was at school with were doing the similar sort of thing. And we started buying a lot of the similar sort of music. So I started DJing. We started to put nights on when we were sort of like 15, 16 at underage nights. Um, and then we started to get into playing at like adult nights. And this is like in a, like I grew up in a mining village between Derby and Nottingham, like ex mining village between Derby and Nottingham. Like there was quite a lot of misspent youth going on and quite a lot of illegal raves that were like, Nobody really cared because it was like at the rugby club. There was no yeah. license. They just said like an uncle or an auntie had given them the key. And it was, you know, it was raucous, but it was amazing to go into those places and play music to people and get that feeling of playing them something that they'd never heard and, and knowing that they were going to respond how you'd responded when you'd heard it. Dan Sadlergate in a record shop with like some cheap headphones on. And that that feeling of... Like I got I got into clubbing in a big way and it was never for the it was never for all the peripheral stuff. It was always for that feeling of hearing something or playing something and like your whole body feeling like it's tingling because it's exciting and yeah. you like whether it's like the base way on your chest as you walk in somewhere or whether it's you know recognizing a sample from a song that you're like your grandma played you when you were like five or six like those moments are like electric so I started DJing more and more I was DJing in Leeds when I lived there and then when I moved to London and I I fell in obviously with that creative crowd it just it blew up because I started going to like Plastic People quite a lot I started going to Corsica Studios which I still think is one of the best clubs in the world um RIP Plastic People as well because that place was incredible um and so I started DJing at house parties and that, and moved into clubs and things like that too. 
and it was amazing and again like I say that that kind of feeling only grew in my record collection unfortunately grew and grew and grew um and then I had a I've got a daughter a six-year-old daughter which when she was first born one of my lasting memories of the first few weeks of her being born is me being uh walking around in circles in our kitchen when we lived in London trying to get back to sleep at about half past four in the morning having a little dribble of sick down my forearm and my best friend at the time we were the first of our like friendship group to have children my best friend at the time calling me not really being able to make out what he was saying in the background but knowing that he was calling to see if I wanted to go to fabric and that was the moment where I was like oh you can't do that anymore things have things have probably changed a little bit here um yeah and you know, I've I've subsequently, you know, I've not I've not hung up my my raving boots completely, um, but things just changed a little bit. But I wanted to try and find a way. So it's such a long winded way of getting to this answer. This no, right. it's all cool. It's good. Um, but I wanted to find a way of sharing music with people because I was still getting mates texting me asking me what I'd bought that week, um, and my dad would occasionally ask me for like album recommendations and things. So I probably had like five or six people on a fairly regular basis asking me for like. For just music so i i was used to just texting people back and like just sending them photos of what i bought and then i thought there must be an easy way of doing this so i set up like a little newsletter expecting it to be like my dad's and like my four mates who were into like as uh andy weatherall would call it like char uh, like czech panel beaters prog like panel beater <laughs> techno yeah because i was spending more time with my head in records and less of it in in clubs my kind of horizons broadened quite quickly and I started getting into, you know, much to the behest of my dad because he'd been trying to get me into jazz for about 15 years by that point. But I started getting into jazz through hip hop because I'd never really been massively into hip hop because I never went to those clubs. And I was reading the Tim Lawrence book at the time, um, which is Love Saves the Day. And I kind of knew about Mancuso, like uh, David Mancuso, who was like the founder of the Loft Parties. And... I obviously do about Paradise Garage and I do about the warehouse and stuff like that. But the early, early stuff, I didn't really know that much about, like where like the philosophy for the loft came about and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. And this, this sort of idea that parties were this amazing, not just the, a kind of a, an opportunity for everybody to get wasted and have an amazing time, but like a moment to bring everybody together and to have like a spiritual moment. I kind of did, I'd never really talked to people about that feeling at any point up until that point, because everyone that I went out with just was going out to get like trashed. But the, this idea that like a guy had set up a free party to bring people together to like effectively, you know, it, it makes me sound like such a hippie and I'm, I'm quite into a, a, like a lot of that sort of leaning, a lot of Buddhism and things like that. But this idea of like a sort of universal vibration and everything comes from like that one, that one vibration, like millions, billions of years ago, and tapping into that and bringing people together to, to make them feel like something bigger themselves. It kind of crystallized a lot of stuff in my head. And I was like, oh, actually, that's, that's, that's the thing that I've been thinking, but not I've been struggling to articulate for so long, like that feeling of like togetherness and, and of, of feeling that sort of state of ecstasy and spiritual enlightenment in moments where it's, you know, you're in elephant and cat like a cavern in elephant and castle and it's seven o'clock on a sunday morning that moment that you all feel together is is something really special 
but I'd never really heard it articulated in the way that, that David Mancuso had in setting up his party. And he had a lot of ethos around it that again, tapped into a lot of Buddhism. Um, and there was this real ethos of it being for everybody, whether you could afford it or not. And that was the first, probably the first time that I'd ever really come across anything that was sort of opposed to capitalism effectively. Yeah, yeah. And it, it blew, again, like we, we were talking about rabbit holes earlier, it just blew my mind that this idea that like you could exist outside of the system almost and you didn't have to just, you know, be consuming, having this idea of like infinite consumption, but with finite resources. Yeah. It, it was just a, yeah, it was a revelation for me. So I, I, I started to chart more and more about my exploration into different areas of music and different ideas. I started to put more essays in um, of things that I'd just been thinking about. Cause I, again, find writing like a really cathartic thing. It helps me crystallize my own thinking. And sometimes it helps me prove or disprove things that I've kind of got in either side of my brain or not either side, but you know what I mean? Like two, two opposing ideas. Um, and then I started including links to other things that I thought were interesting. It just grew and grew. And I think the last one was 141 or 142. Like it's been going a while now. I think we were probably about five yeah. years. And I started having guests in. Yeah. And it just grew. And before you know it, you've got like Luke Una and uh, like Kate Hutchinson and Giles Peterson on there. And like just the the serendipitous nature of the people that I've met through that is is nuts. Because there's a WhatsApp group now, and I met, I actually met quite a few of the people in the WhatsApp group, a party that I DJ'd out on Saturday. Um, and it was amazing. Like it was just, it was bizarre because I've been talking to these people for years now, but I've never actually met them because, well, yeah. one of all of this that's been going on, but two, because the only bond that we really had was music. Um, so yeah, Love Will Save the Day kind of came out of nowhere, but I, I, and it was, it was again, like a sort of total accident, really. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it is, though, because when you started talking about it, you were talking about when sort of like under, you know, under 18s parties and stuff. I think this is like this through line totally from from all those things your dad was saying to to sort of where you are now in so many ways, I think. And um, so it's a great story, I think. I'm going to call my dad after we finish talking and just say yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank him. Just say thank you. <laughs> Um, um, let's talk about Common People because this is a relatively new um, project you've been working on. That's right. So Common People is a networking community of working class and people from working class backgrounds that work or want to work in the creative industries. So it stretches from advertising and art through to publishing to music, uh, through to fashion, gaming, anyone that has a sort of, and you know, it is as broad as anyone that has an aspect of creativity in their role or in their industry is more than welcome to join, providing you're, you're from a kind of working class or, or you work class background or you, you are working class. Um, again, the Genesis story on this is, is, is almost embarrassingly simple <laughs> and totally <laughs> accidental. Um, so I come from a working class background, like the environment that I grew up in, the idea of going to university was like just this a totally alien concept. Nobody in my family or nobody in my extended sort of network, like network of friends or family have been to university. Um, and I only went because I've got a teacher who was kind of pushing me a little bit. I actually messed up a lot of my A-levels because I was running a party like the week of 
the week of some of my finals and decided that running the party was more important than doing my maths A levels, which is in hindsight was fun, but maybe not the most sensible approach. Um, and then I, I, as I was saying earlier, how I got into the industry, it kind of, I, it all kind of happened by accident, but a very, very happy accident and through people taking amazing chances on me. But there's a lot of people that don't get those people and they don't have a network. They don't, they've not got cultural capital. They've not got social capital. They've definitely not got economic capital. That, that is, is, if you don't have those three, it's incredible, incredibly difficult to get a creative job. Like most, I think most of the creative industries, usually you're looking at six months to 12 months of like unpaid or internship work before you even get off like your first job. If, you, if you've not got money or a network of people to, to prop you up, that's not going to happen. No, exactly. Um, and over the over the course of the last sort of 14, 13, 14 years, I've met a few people in different agencies. Like I'm talking like a handful, like a dozen, um, who use references and vernacular and slang that other people haven't and marks themselves out as, you know, you know, when you hear, you hear someone say like, oh, yeah, it was just down the jitty down the bottom of our house. It was the ginnel bit like behind our house. Yeah. Like, you know, straight away that there's 95% of people in the room have got no idea what that person's talking about because it's just, it's the sort of term that people that grew up with more privilege or from a, a, a sort of a more economically prosperous household just wouldn't know because it's it's a weird word that runs behind like council houses. It's the, the, the sort of the alley that runs behind council houses where people used to throw like their toilet waste out. Mm. Like they don't, they, you, you don't get them in Knightsbridge. <laughs> they exist there. And you like over the course of like my career so far, you just you just kind of notice certain people using certain phrases like that that I know that I know and I know they know, but I know no one else knows. And you form this kind of invisible club really of people that have got similar backgrounds. So I think the last research that was done by the Creative uh, Creative Industries Association found that 13% of people in the creative industries came from a working class background. Um, and that's down from 16% five years ago, which is absolutely horrendous. Mm. Uh, it is totally unrepresentative and demonstrates, I think, certainly in advertising and media, the sort of monolithic culture that exists where everybody looks and sounds the same. Like, And it's, you know, it's great if you know all of the codes, you know some of the people already and you've got the money to do all of the stuff. But if you've not got those three, you've not got the social, the cultural, or the financial capital, you don't, you can't really exist. And then a friend called Tom, Tom Armstrong, who set up a magazine called The Move, um, which is actually what my laptop is stacked upon, upon right now, weirdly. Um, an amazing magazine, like a, a sort of, I suppose, music, uh, yeah, music magazine uh, celebrating London music culture and fashion culture. And I met him through the magazine because he did came and did something with love and save the day um but he sent me a an instagram story or series of stories from this woman called uh, rosa connell now rosa connell is a i would say you know she's up and coming but she's very successful already uh stylist and costume designer working in london fashion grew up in croydon and then moved to norfolk i believe from a working class background and in this set of stories i've never heard of her before I'm very fortunate that she's now involved in common people. But in this series of Instagram stories, she basically articulated something that I'd really struggled to for a long time, which was 
class discrimination is the last, effectively the last socially acceptable form of discrimination going, because we still talk about chavs. We still laugh at people that, are, you know, we, we use terms like pikeys. Like we still talk about like the benefits class. There's still programs on telly that, that sort of glorify people having their benefits taken off them or people having worse, like the bailiffs coming around. And, you know, we laugh at people in swimming pools outside council houses on hot days in, you know, blow up swimming pools. There's a photo that's doing the rounds at the moment where there's like two guys in a swimming pool on a street, like a row of what look like, you know, they're, they're, they look like old council houses. And there's some there's beer cans around, and people are like, oh yeah, this oh, this is just this is the true England, and like like making huge amounts of fun of these like these two blokes. And it's because it's fun to make it's fun to make fun of poor people still. Mm. Like that's that's the the general attitude is that it's still okay to make fun of poor people. Yeah, they've not made more of themselves. Um, and so he Tom sent me this link, and I just texted him back, and I was like, okay, I've spent ten years like giving it the big end and being really chatty about about what should be done let's just try and do something and if it doesn't work then so be it at least we've tried yeah so I text Tom with that and then I text him I set up a new whatsapp group with him and all of the people that I'd effectively talked to about being from a working class background and then being similar I said let's set up a whatsapp group and see what happens it's like a sun like a Sunday morning like the old social media strategist in me was not really thinking <laughs> very deeply into this Sunday morning 11 o'clock sending out a tweet saying if you're from a working class background or you're working class and you're in the creative industries do you want to join a group if so dm me and just thought it'd be like 25 to 30 people that were like a bit like that four Yorkshireman thing like everybody sort of like bemoaning about being yeah. in the background and then nothing would really come of it but I thought at least then I've tried um except that didn't happen no it didn't <laughs> No. <laughs> I watched it not happen. <laughs> it just, it just, Joe. Honestly, my phone just went into meltdown. Like, I was supposed to take Effie swimming, and I was like, "Darling, I'm going to take you swimming later on because, like, I can't, I can't get people into this group fast enough, mm. and I want to make sure that there's enough space for everybody, so that everybody who wants to be in it can." And yeah. then missed. So I didn't realize, but there's a 250 person limit on WhatsApp groups, and that got exceeded pretty quickly I think within about 12 hours and then campaign picked it up which is the advertising industry's trade magazine or sort of lead trade magazine and then it got picked up in ad week and the drum I think it got picked up in the wall street journal at one point it went amazing wow music week like it just it just went like nuclear Mm. and it was amazing but we had no plan (laughs) (laughs) and we didn't have a name for it or anything like that so the same people that I'd spoken to that morning to say, look, we're going to do, let's do this thing. Let's, if you're happy, let's do it together. Then spoke on Monday morning and we're like, all right, we need to come up with a plan for what it is that we're going to do. Yes, yeah, so we needed to give it a bit more structure. So we launched the Slack channel and then the calls from amazing associations started coming in, like the Advertising Association and Brixton Finishing School and the School of Communication Arts, Commercial Break, absolutely incredible organisation, like the 93% Club. And all of a sudden there's this, this network of people that just appeared and it was like, I just remember sitting in those places and them going like, what you've done is an amazing thing. And me and like the other people involved just being like, we don't know what we've done. Like we literally, <laughs> like, other than just bringing people together under like a cool, clever name, I don't think we've done anything. 
but now we've, I, you know, again, very, very fortunate that you, you kind of meet people that are just as passionate and just as enthusiastic, but far more experienced and knowledgeable about these things that, that give you help and give you a leg up. And ultimately all of this is about establishing a network of people that can help common people be more common in the creative industries. You know, I made made a joke about like the genesis of both common people and love will save the day being quite sort of accidental. But and I think you know, from an explicit perspective and from an intention perspective, they are quite accidental. But I think on a deep rooted, you know, you'd probably have to start charging me for this, wouldn't you? At this point, but like, I think I've always been trying to I've been trying to plug a gap that I felt that just happened that other people have felt too, mm. and in that sense both love will save the day and common people are both very selfish endeavors um do you know what i mean though they're like it's literally me living out my sort of like trauma and lack of belonging on a stage but accidentally finding that there's a, a broader cast than just me and that there's loads of other people you know love will save the day that whatsapp group is is insane like there's it's such a weird group of people but I love that because they none of them feel like they belong. And by virtue, that becomes the thread in which they belong. Yeah, exactly. And I've always tried to build teams like that when I've, you know, whether I've worked at big agencies or small agencies, I've always had a belief that diversity um, is, you know, and again, it's totally selfish, but people from different backgrounds, from different uh different races different genders different sexualities they they come up problems with different solutions they they have different lived experience so they give you a different answer everybody looks the same and sounds the same you get the same answer and that's the like that's the antithesis of creativity yeah Yeah, so the first the first thing is if you want to get involved then please just message someone that you know is involved or message me like my dms on twitter are open my email address is jedhallam at gmail.com like there is a multitude of ways to get in in touch with me and i've touch wood only had some abuse not a lot of abuse so I'll take that also you talked about like just getting out there and like feeding your brain with curiosity I just want to cover a quick question about like what you do when you're creatively stuck what's your sort of go-to sort of tip and trick to uh to sort of get yourself out of a funk um it's going to be a really really unpopular answer but it's one that works every time so there's there's two things that I do one is that I go for a walk uh, I know it sounds so stupid, but there is there are there are two now two scientific studies that show that jazz musicians that it took a long time to find these jazz musicians that are active on stage are better improvisers than those that aren't. An improvisation skill is is inherently linked to perceptions of talent and you know you know the the kind of uh the canon of that artist's work so mm. the more you move about on stage the better your brain works for improvising mm. so the more you move about there's a direct link between coming up with new things on the fly and exercise um the other is just grinding it out like what we do there are no moments of flashes of inspiration like what we do is a craft and you've got to work really fucking hard at it sometimes and you just got to keep putting the words down and if your process is writing in word and just writing and rewrite it, like my, that's mine, right? I write endless amounts of notes, throw 95% of them away, probably more of them away. But occasionally I'll write that kind of like almost automatic sentence. I'm making myself sound like Jack Kerouac or someone. <laughs> no, definitely not like that. Well, you'll write that one sentence. You're like, that's it. 
then you throw the rest away and then you can build everything off that one sentence. Mm. And it is just a case of just grinding it out. Like what we do, there, there is no, no such thing as artistic inspiration. It's just a craft. You just got to keep doing it. And that's what, that's what makes what we do so amazing. You don't have to be, tra- I'm not trained for anything. The only thing I'm trained to do is go into like WH Smith's and read the magazines. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing. You just got to keep, you just got to keep at it and feed keep your brain, but not yeah. the thing you're doing. That's the other thing, I suppose. If I'm going to, you know, strategists always work in threes. The third thing would be give your brain food that is not in the world that you're in. Like if you work in publishing and you're reading publishing books, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Read books about everything other than publishing. Like, I think that's why I love music because it just leads me into things that I would never get into before. Like, knowing that Sun Ra and Drexia have got a connection through Afrofuturism and then getting into Janelle Monet and like a, a lot of the texts from Mark. It's just, it just leads you into really interesting spaces and different references that other people might not have and that spark different ideas that sit in your head. You just got to keep at it, go for a walk, keep at it and read and dig yourself into loads of different stuff. Brilliant advice. And that's where <laughs> I think we'll end it, Jed. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I really, really enjoy chatting to you and uh, look forward to seeing where things go. So take care. Have a good day. Amazing. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.